Let's pray. Father God, thank you, thank you, thank you that we can come into a room like this, set thoughts and things aside that distract us, ask you to meet with us and to teach us to engage our hearts and our minds, and you do that. And would you continue doing that right now? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we begin a study of the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, almost certainly the last book of the New Testament that was uh, written. It was written by the Apostle John to seven what were probably small churches in Asia Minor or in what we today recognize as Turkey. Uh, These were churches that John loved. These were churches where John had probably labored. These were churches what John knew very, very well, but could not visit because he was at this time banished to an island called Patmos. And we're told uh, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So here's a guy who's been preaching the gospel, sharing the truth that he believes about Jesus. People are coming to believe in and trust in him. And the result in John's life is banishment to Patmos. Uh, The authorities didn't like what John was doing. Patmos is an island about 40 miles from the mainland there of Turkey, Asia Minor. And uh, John didn't know if he would ever see these people again. Uh, So he writes this book. And he writes it for a variety of reasons. He writes it to challenge them. He writes it to encourage them. He writes this book to call them to repentance. That's an interesting word, a Christian word, a word that means turning around, about face, you know, leaving practices and things that you're committed to, uh, leaving those things, sins behind and becoming committed to other things. He writes this book to these Christians to give them hope. So there's all kinds of reasons, actually, that John writes this book. And the book begins this way. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. The time is near. You got to ask, what time are we talking about here? Well, the time for God to judge, the time for God to bring justice where justice is needed, the time for God's kingdom up there to come down here. That time is near, says John. Question, when is the world going to end? You got any idea on that? Is it going to end in your lifetime or mine? Uh, Are Christians going to be persecuted as we get close to that time? Who's going to lead that persecution? You know, the Bible's got a, a term. You've probably heard of it before. It's called the Antichrist. Christ meaning Messiah or anointed one. That, of course, we believe is Jesus. And then there are other individuals throughout human history who have been anti-Christ, people who oppose the work in the kingdom of Jesus, and they persecute the church. So who is the Antichrist? Is it Obama or is it Trump? Let's vote right now. Yeah. Bigger question, maybe a more important question, is the book of Revelation a roadmap to the future? Is it? I don't think there's any book in the Bible that is the subject of as much curiosity, confusion, and misinformation as surrounds the book of Revelation. I think in our day there are two tendencies regarding this book, and both of these tendencies I think are bad. 
one of the tendencies is for people to become obsessed with this book. They often approach this book like it's a prophetic jigsaw puzzle that's going to give them secret information, you know, codes, if you will, things that they need so that they will know when Jesus will return, when certain judgments are likely to happen, who to follow, who not to follow, how to avoid apocalyptic uh, chaos and that type of thing. And sometimes these people have timelines and diagrams and, and predictions galore. Maybe you've seen some of those. Sadly, I think when that happens, we not only misinterpret the Bible and in particular this book, we also get diverted from the heart, the heart of our faith, which is Jesus' mission. And Jesus' mission is and always has been to make disciples, make followers. And he tells us, go and make disciples. I've been in ministry now for nearly 40 years and I've observed just in my lifetime some pretty nutty interpretations of this book. Uh, in the 1980s, I was living in South Florida and there was a pastor living there in South Florida who wrote a book and made the claim based on his study of this book and the book of Daniel that Jesus was coming back sometime he was sure in 1988. Well, you know, didn't happen. So what do you think he did? He wrote a sequel, of course. And he predicted that he would come in 1990, okay? And there have been others that claim uh, that uh, Jesus is going to return. And there are others who say, well, you can't know the day and the time, but you can know the generation. And it always sort of seems to be the generation in which that writer is living. And, you know, that's just kind of coincidental. Uh, one writer wrote these words, desolating earthquakes, sweeping fires, distressing poverty, political profligacy, private bankruptcy, and widespread immorality abound in these last days, which obviously indicate that the Lord's return will be immediate. Those are the words of William Miller, written in 1843. <laughs> this man, William Miller, he, he tragically disappointed tens of thousands of American followers when his predictions were wrong again and again and again. And as some of you know, this is not a new story. This is not a unique story. In fact, predictors have been wrong so far 100% of the time. You might want to make note of that 100% of the time. G.K. Chesterton, a Christian apologist and a satirist and a very careful and clear thinker, wrote these words. He said, though St. John saw many strange monsters in his visions, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. <laughs> uh, I just want to kind of acknowledge right up front, this is a risky book to teach. And so I'm just going to let Daniel do it. So come on up, Daniel. <laughs> no, Daniel and I will be jumping in on this together. Uh, we'll try to keep each other honest with this book. Um, this book becomes even more risky if you intend to make predictions. <laughs> and I'll just say at the outset, we won't be doing that. Uh, in fact, when the church engages in speculation... Predictions of that sort, I think we do Jesus in injustice. We do his gospel. We do his mission a great disservice. Uh, after all, Jesus himself was really clear about his return. I don't see how he could be any more clear. After his resurrection, uh, he was with his disciples, and the disciples wanted to know, like many of us do, you know, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, what's going to happen in the future? Is it now? Are you going to uh, establish your kingdom? And this is what he says to them. He says, it's not for you to know 
times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In another place, Jesus is talking about his return and uh, he's talking about the judgment of God that's going to come. And he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the son. And that's an interesting statement, isn't it? What Jesus was, this was when he was uh, involved in his earthly ministry. And there were many things that the son, the son of God, God himself, Jesus, uh, God in the flesh, uh, submitted his will and his knowledge to the will and knowledge of the father. And there were certain things the father hadn't revealed to him. That's an interesting thing. You can think on that for a bit, but that's what he meant here. Not even the son knows, but only the father, says Jesus. Jesus was clear. I mean, how do you get any more clear? No one knows that day or hour. Uh, we just know he's coming. Amen? Amen? He is. He's coming. And that is our doctrine of eschatology, our doctrine of end times. We're absolutely certain that he is coming. In fact, all Jesus' followers pin all their hopes on this very thing. This is what the Apostle Paul calls our blessed hope right here, the return of Jesus Christ. Paul said that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, you might be sitting here this morning and Jesus may not seem or feel or you might not think of him much in terms of his glory. If Jesus were to come here right now in all his glory, he would be brighter than the shining sun and you and I would be lying on the floor. That's how great his glory is. It's how bright his goodness and righteousness shines. We'll get a glimpse of that when he returns. We can kind of ignore him now. We can take him for granted now. We can act like he doesn't matter now. Not then then we're going to understand how much he matters. This is the Jesus who came and the Jesus who died and the Jesus who rose again, the Jesus who ascended to heaven. They're like, whoa, 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 that's boring. Really? That Jesus is coming back. That's the hope that sustains a Christian, not just in this age, but in every age. The story that this sorry old earth will be set right one day. And that will happen when Jesus returns. We believe, you see, in the literal, personal return of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'm going to have you anything but Presbyterian here in a minute. <laughs> but Jesus, you know, doesn't say, I will return one day. So get about speculating as to when and how and where that will happen. Rather, what he says is, since I'm coming back, be filled with my Holy Spirit. He says, be alert, be yielded, be about my work and my mission. Spread the good news. That's what Jesus would have us do. Jesus wants us all to be on the welcome committee when he returns, if he returns now. But nowhere does he say we need to know a time or a date. Basically, here's the deal. The father wants it to be a surprise. So guess what? It's going to be a surprise. Nobody's going to nail this, right? With a date or a time or a place. We just need to be ready. When? Always. Always ready. When he comes, we want to be found faithful, not neglectful. 
Now, as I said, some Christians in churches get obsessed with this book. It's about all they talk about. But then there's another response to this book that's equally as problematic, and that is that some Christians just completely ignore it. I mean, why study the book of Revelation, right? I've talked to many Christians who confided in me that they've tried to read it before, but it just doesn't make any sense to them. And I get that. Uh, It's got bizarre images and strange creatures and beasts and blood and bowls and seals and trumpets of judgment and people eating scrolls and bottomless pits and dragons, a great whore of Babylon, four horsemen, war, pestilence, famine, death. It's not a very happy book. It's, It's not a real happy book, right? I mean, there's some bad stuff happening and unfolding in this book. Put it next to our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Which one would you want to study? I'll go with the latter there. I'm just curious. No no shame in this whatsoever. Uh, There's many understandable reasons. But how many have never done a careful study of the book of Revelation? Would you raise your hand? Good many of us. And a good many liars here too. (laughs) Well, we're going to now. We're going to do this together. We're going to learn about it, study it, apply it, and try to grow together as we look at this book. Uh, Here's our big question for this morning. This is pretty simple. Why study this book? (laughs) If this book is so easily misunderstood, and if over the years and through the centuries it's actually divided Christians in terms of their opinions about this book, why are we going to study it? Well, I'm going to give you three reasons, and some of these are deep. You'll have to hang with me, like this first one. First reason is because it's in the Bible, okay? One of the marks of a healthy church is that we study the whole counsel of God, the whole will of God, the whole word of God. It's a dangerous thing when Christians get into just studying their own little pet passages over and over and over. To be balanced and to be mature, we need to study all of God's word, Old Testament, New Testament, the whole counsel of God. The Apostle Paul said this, all scripture, that means Old Testament, New Testament, the all of the Bible, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. And the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's the result of submitting yourself to the whole counsel of God. And of course, this includes the book of Revelation. Uh, This book, I believe, has a lot to teach us about spiritual battles that rage all around us in our culture, in our world, and in here, in us. It has a lot to teach us about the realities of heaven and hell, the realities of good and evil, the realities of secular and heavenly powers, the realities of suffering and persecution and things like spiritual warfare. I believe, too, that as we study this book, we can be, if we open ourselves up to it, we can become a people gripped by the triumph of Jesus. Understand, that's a lot of the reason why John was moved upon by the Holy Spirit to write this book, The Triumph of Jesus. The seven churches to which John addresses this book were struggling They were facing all kinds of difficulties. That's why John said, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. John wanted these Christians who would hear this book read to be blessed and to have hope. 
And I believe that if we give ourselves to the study of this book, our hope for life and triumph in the midst of difficult circumstances will just increase dramatically as we learn to lean into and to trust the one who is going to return. So anyway, the first reason for studying this book, we should study it because it's in the Bible. Second reason we should study this book is uh, read and study it is because of the promise of blessing. We, We just read it. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. You know, what's interesting is that many of the people who John was writing to, they didn't feel very blessed. Not at all. They felt persecuted. Some were even being martyred. A few were losing their lives. Some were being tempted by other teachings, false teachings. Some of them were becoming faint-hearted. Others had grown apathetic in their faith, just kind of going through religious motions. Can anyone relate? Not much love for Jesus anymore. And John says to them what John says to you and me. You read this book. You understand it. You obey it. You listen to it. And you will be blessed. You will overcome. You will learn to live in the power and the presence of Almighty God. That's his promise. It's the only book in the New Testament with a promise quite like that. And that alone is reason enough to read, to study, to get familiar with this book. Third reason, and this reason I'm really excited about, I believe that we should study this book because it will sharpen our ability to study and interpret the Bible in general and apocalyptic literature in it in particular. You see, this book, the Bible, is not always an easy book to interpret it. And uh, we learn, as we learn together, I believe that many of us will learn some important principles about how to read and how to understand this book we call the Bible and believe is the Word of God. And this is called hermeneutics, if you want the fancy word. It refers to the science of interpreting literature, but more specifically, the science of interpreting the Bible. And the basic idea is that whenever communication takes place, there's always a gap between the sender of information and the receiver of information. And that gap often causes the message to be somewhat misunderstood. We've all been misunderstood before. A parent and her little four-year-old daughter are flying in a plane and the mother doesn't want her daughter's ears to hurt as the plane takes off and when the plane lands. So the mother gives her a piece of gum and says, here, honey, this is is for your ears. And the little girl's a little confused, you know, and puts it in her mouth and chews it. And next thing you know, she takes it out of her mouth and she's cramming it in her ears. Well, understand, that's a hermeneutical problem there. Uh, The purpose of hermeneutics is to help us understand the reason for the gap that exists between the sender and the receiver, and to try to reduce that gap, minimize the distortion. And this is real important for those of us who want to understand books of the Bible, in particular this book, the book of Revelation, books that were written in a different time, and in a different place, and in a very different culture, you see. When Jesus says, for example, just to give you an example of this, he he says, for your eye, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into 
the hell of fire. Well, is he to be taken literally or is he to be taken figuratively? You see, good hermeneutics will help us know what Jesus meant and help us understand what Jesus wants us to do. The book of Revelation is an interesting book because it's full of symbolism. It's full of metaphor. It's full of typology and figurative language. Because of that, very often people have gotten in trouble trying to understand this book because uh, certainly we all want to take it literally. Am I right? We want to understand it and we want to obey it and we want to apply it. That's taking it literally. But do we take it literally? That's a legitimate question you understand. And a lot of people have gotten into trouble taking things in this book quite literally, or so they say, and then trying to apply it in a day and a culture and a time and a place that's quite different. And it's oftentimes when that kind of stuff happens, you know, locusts become uh, Black Hawk helicopters and, uh, you know, Gog and Magog becomes Russia. I've got a lot of secret information for you coming if you just keep coming and joining us here. But see, when you read this book, you have to always be asking a couple of really important questions. And one would be, what did John mean when he uses this image, this, this imagery? This, is, is, what does this symbolize, these objects, these pictures, these numbers? And a variant of that question that's maybe even a better question is this. What did John's original readers understand that image, this image to represent? What did this mean to the original readers? And asking those two simple questions can keep us out of a lot of trouble because guaranteed they never thought anything that John wrote about was a Black Hawk helicopter. They'd never heard of such a thing, you see. So what did they understand this book to mean? And sometimes, truth is, we just need a little first century background information to understand what the heck John is talking about. Images and references that made sense immediately to John's readers, we don't get. Sometimes not very readily, not without digging into the culture, digging into the history. So let me kind of show you what I mean. In this book, there are primarily four kinds of imagery we're going to run up against over and over and over. For example, uh, one is just objects. Certain objects get mentioned. John talks about objects a lot, objects that were familiar to his readers and had meaning to his readers. For example, he describes Jesus this way. He said, in his right hand, he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Some interesting objects there. Oh man, that's good whiskey. Uh, <laughs> those are some interesting objects. I'm just kidding. I'm a, I, I've never drank whiskey, although I have been accused of it uh, while preaching. So anyway, what do objects like that mean? What does stuff like that mean? In his right hand, he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Well, to the casual reader, that's just a really odd way to describe Jesus. But understand, John is not saying that when we see Jesus someday, there's going to be a literal sword coming out of Jesus' lips. Remember, culture and history matter. In John's day, what was a sword? It was the means of enforcing authority and exercising power. See, that would have been the first century 
uh, mindset, cultural mindset when hearing what John is writing. Whoever held the sword was in charge, de facto. Whoever held the sword had the power. And we're going to see more of this in the weeks to come. But for now, suffice it to say, John's use of this object here in this image is meant to challenge us and his readers. That's what John is doing. John is raising a big question, actually, with just this one little image of Jesus uh, and this sword thing. And the question is, whose words carry weight with you? Whose words have the power and authority over your life? Who's got a sword coming out of their mouth for you? Is it your boss? They speak, you jump. Is it your parents? Is it your peers? Their words carry authority for you. Is it your spouse? Is it your children? You see, all these people speak words all the time into our lives. What do we do with those words? What authority do we give those words? And I know one parent who shared with me, her young child has taken to kind of yelling at her when she doesn't get her way. I hate you. You're a terrible mom. I hate you. What do you do with words like that? She said these words were hurting, killing her to hear them. Well, do you let words like that have authority in your life? There's some people you should listen to. And then, of course, there's some you shouldn't. Whose words carry the sword, authority, power in your life? John is saying in this very powerful picture, and it's just a little snippet, Jesus has authority and power. Jesus' words are true. His words are powerful. His words judge between right and wrong. His words raise up or tear down whole kingdoms and nations. His words create. His words are accurately and rightly defined. Jesus is someone whose words matter. Long ago, Jesus said, let there be light. And there was light. Jesus' words mattered. Jesus was in a boat one time with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee and the wind and the waves were raging and the boat was about to capsize and the disciples were scared to death. And Jesus stood up and he said, peace, be still. And the wind subsided. And the waves stopped raging. And the disciples were filled with great fear, we're told. Why? Well, they were shocked. They were shocked the way his words had authority and power. They had never met anyone like this before. Do you see, friends, the message that John wants us to get is that in Jesus, finally, finally, we have someone whose words are always absolutely true. They're absolutely authoritative. They have absolute power. Jesus' words create. They define. Jesus reigns over all things. So when somebody speaks words to you that contradict Jesus' words, don't listen to them. Doesn't matter who it is. Your peers, a boss, your parents, fellow students, a spouse, a child, if their words contradict Jesus' words, then reject them. 
Now, all of this is sewn up in just one little image, one little part of one little image. Paul actually tried to practice this himself. There was a church that he had planted. There were some people in it that didn't like Paul, imagine, and didn't think that he was a good speaker or a good teacher, and they didn't like the way he led. And so Paul wrote them a letter, and in it he said, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. He's trying to practice this, this thing that John later pictured in an image. He's saying, there's no sword in your mouth for me. That's what he's saying. Question, do you put yourself under the authority and the power of Jesus' word? Or do you give authority and power to others and ignore Jesus' word? John says in this marvelous little image, finally, finally, someone who speaks and it is so. Finally, someone who loves me and also tells me the truth. Always, always the truth. This person I will listen to. This person I will follow. This person I will obey. That's the message of the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. John uses objects and tools, uh, symbols to teach us important truths. We're going to run into this over and over and over and over in the book of Revelation. A second kind of tool that John uses uh, in Revelation is numbers. This gets fun. Sometimes numbers are used in a very literal sense, uh, like the seven churches to whom John is writing. Uh, but often, too, they are used symbolically. Why the number seven? Well, seven churches here actually give us a clue to understand that John is actually writing to the church, past, present, and future, all churches. Uh, this number seven is very interesting. Seven is a number of perfection, a number of completion, a number indicating wholeness. Uh, seven was the number of days in the week. God uh, created, and when he completed his creation, he rested on the seventh day because it was whole. It was complete. Um, for biblical writers, the number seven is a picture of just that, completion and perfection. And so we see things like John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. That's the Father, Heavenly Father. And from the seven spirits. Well, who the heck is that? Who's the seven spirits? Well, that's the Holy Spirit. It's an odd, unusual way of referring to them, but it's this idea of wholeness, completeness. The Holy Spirit has all power, knows all things. He's the seven spirits, you see. And so this is actually a Trinitarian formula, who, that, well, the one who is, who was, who is to come, the Father, and from the seven spirits, the Holy Spirit, who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. There you are, Father, Holy Spirit, and Jesus Seven is a number we're going to run into a lot. We're going to see seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, all indicating the completeness and the perfection of God's judgment poured out upon the nations. Another number that we're going to see often is the, in this book is the number 12 and its multiples. We're going to run into 12 tribes of Israel over and over, 12 disciples, apostles of Jesus, 24 elders in the throne room falling down and casting their crowns, 144,000 sealed in chapter 7. And we'll be able to tell you exactly who those people are too, by the way. Just hold on. You'll want to know if you're one of them. So, you know, and anyone teaching on that, it's always interesting. They certainly include themselves in that number. But anyway, we'll, we'll come back to that. So 12 and its multiples in Scripture are often a symbol just for the people of God. 
You see, in the Old Testament, it was Israel, 12 tribes. That's Israel. That's the people of God. In the New Testament, you know, the, the 24 elders, the 12 apostles, that's the church. And we'll get more deeply into all these things. Daniel will. We'll see, uh, we'll see this again and again, the importance and the significance of numbers all over the place. Now, a third thing that John uses symbolically are events. And not just any old events. Cosmic, cataclysmic events. He uses these kinds of things to describe uh, certain times in history when God is powerfully at work in redeeming. At those moments in time, there's all kinds of cataclysmic events. I mean, think for a moment about the crucifixion of Jesus. What were some of the things that happened while Jesus was hanging on a cross? Cataclysmic events, earthquake, tombs opening up, the, the, the sun being darkened for a period of three hours. That's apocalyptic, cataclysmic language. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. It happened. But you would expect it to happen because that was a huge redemptive, did I say that right? Huge redemptive moment. Jesus dying on a cross. So, of course, cataclysmic events are going to unfold. But um, we see the same thing in the Old Testament, language like this in the, book of, uh, in the book of Psalms. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts, you see kind of apocalyptic language. Obviously, the psalmist didn't mean that the planet was going to heat up and liquefy. What he's really talking about in that context, he's simply saying that in this world, the rulers of this world think they are in control. They always do. They think their armies and their horses and their swords are going to have the last word. But here's the thing. They are ignorant. And they are arrogant and they are mistaken because the truth is above them and all around them, usually without their knowledge whatsoever, God is working out his own plan and purpose and human beings are not going to be able to stop them because when he speaks, the earth melts, you see. So in the book of Revelation, we have God speaking. And catastrophic events are happening everywhere. The earth melts, thunder and lightning is happening. Crops are destroyed, disease and is unleashed, famine, pestilence. What does all this mean? Well, in many cases, it simply means justice is finally coming. And evil is being overcome. And evil kingdoms are overthrown to make way for Jesus' kingdom which will be all about goodness and all about righteousness and all about justice and all about mercy and all about forgiveness. You see, the end of all things in prophetic apocalyptic passages in the Bible are usually described as cataclysmic events and violent upheavals because that's exactly what they are. The old is going. The new has come. Interesting thing. In uh, the book of Revelation, all the catastrophic events that are described, and there are many, Gosh, to the casual reader, I mean, that sounds bad. That's, that's, that's frightening. That's not a good thing. But generally speaking, they were actually intended to be a source of comfort and confidence to the church. It's kind of a reversal. Remember, John's writing to churches who are, in many cases, many instances, being persecuted by Roman authorities. That's what's going on. That's the cultural, historical context. And John is, in essence, saying, you know... It may look like the world is winning. It may look like Rome is utterly unstoppable, has all the power. 
But one day you wait. The king is coming. The king is coming, and when he does, he will turn everything on its ear, everything upside down. What's right will be secured and accomplished. Now, there's one more kind of image that I want to mention as we end here, and that is John's use of creatures. Man, we got some great creatures coming in this book. Lions, lambs, beasts, oxen, eagles, horses, and then there's a set of uh, beings that are just called creatures because there's no name for them. We don't know what these things are. They're covered in eyes and they're flying and twirling and whizzing and worshiping God. It's like, whoa, you know, John saw that and goes, yeah, I don't even know. We'll just call it creature, you know, weird stuff. And you got to ask when you encounter that, what, what does this mean? You know, what, what are we supposed to get from this, John? And we're going to work on that, and uh, Daniel's going to explain it. <laughs> Making sense of the creatures. No, I'm obviously joking. Sometimes we have a sense, a really good sense, of what something uh, pictured like that means, and other times less so, to be honest with you. Other times, you know, we're, we're guessing, and we'll, we'll tell you when we're guessing, and, uh, you know, and we'll tell you when we have a little greater confidence about something. But we shall see that often specific cultures, now hang with me, we're almost done. Often specific cultures associate certain creatures with certain meanings. The, the culture has developed this. We do this. This is nothing new. Uh, you, you complete the sentence. You're as slow as a turtle. Why, we just make that association, don't we? Or we say, think, oh, he's so cuddly, cuddly as a bear. That doesn't make any sense, by the way. That, that goes back to the, you know, a, a teddy bear. But we say that we have these associations in our culture. Man, he's as strong as a ox or lion. We say both. Also, we use creatures to symbolize political parties. I'm sure you're aware of this. After an election, if you saw a political cartoon and what you saw was a donkey celebrating and an elephant's just crying, who won the election? Yeah, yeah, you weren't sure, some of you. So the point is just this, to get the meaning, you have to understand that culture associates with a, you know, a particular creature certain meanings, right, that were meaningful to them. And if you don't understand that, well, I should say, and it may not be what our culture associates with those creatures or those, uh, those same meanings. If you don't get that, you'll be very confused trying to read and study. And we're going to see John use images, creatures, to convey spiritual truths. And believe me, his images are very, very impactful and powerful when we understand them. Let me just close with this example of what I'm talking about. And first, a little story, uh, because it's kind of my context. Uh, something happened to me over 20 years ago that I, it's, it's an image that I'll never, ever forget. I was playing basketball with my youngest son, Graham. He was only about 10 or so at the time. And we, this was in our driveway. And, you know, so he was about elbow height and I grabbed the ball. I turned around and I hit him in the nose and he just, his nose started bleeding. I mean, like, you know, like a, like a hose, literally. I felt terrible. I mean, here's my young son covered in blood in the driveway. Um, and I was mortified. Like I say, it's, a, it's an image I'll never forget. 
Right away, I think Graham sees that I'm concerned, troubled for him, and he could tell I was upset. And he starts saying, it's okay, Dad. It's okay. I'll be fine, Dad. I'm okay. I'm okay, but I'm okay. I'll be fine, you know. He was comforting me. And I was the cause of his pain. And I was the cause of his blood. And he's comforting me. Here's another picture. A creature that John describes. John says, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This is God the Father seated on the throne. He's got something in his right hand. And it's a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And understand those seven seals, they represent God's plan. They represent God's purpose. They represent God's coming judgment and God's coming kingdom. That's what those seven seals are about. And he says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? In other words, who is worthy to execute the plan of God? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to even look into it. That's serious. No one is able to execute the plan of God. And John says, I began to weep. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look in it. See, you got to understand, you're not worthy. Never will be. And neither am I. No one is worthy to take the plan, the purpose, the kingdom of God and to execute it, to put it in play. And then it says, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. This is that rich Old Testament symbolism has conquered. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. So that he can open the scroll and the seven seals and execute the plan of God. And of course, you got to ask, well, how? How come he's worthy? How did he conquer? And I would answer that if you wouldn't keep interrupting me. But here it is. (laughs) It says, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw, here's another creature, a lamb. Standing, you got to picture this, as though it had been slain. This is the lamb standing as though it had been slain, meaning it's covered in blood. There's blood all over this lamb. This is not a pretty sight. This is a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is not a pretty sight. It's also not quite a normal lamb because it says it's got seven horns, you know, and that's a thing of power, you know, we're supposed to understand. That doesn't exactly go with lambs. So we're going to run into this a lot where stuff in the book of Revelation just gets jammed in there because it has a meaning for their culture. It doesn't necessarily fit with lambs, but who cares? We're talking creatures here, right? Anyway, so not quite a normal lamb with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all those. This lamb has power. This lamb is imbued with power of the Holy Spirit of God. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. 
See, John says, he conquered by becoming a lamb. He conquered by being covered in blood. It's a picture of the Old Testament Passover lamb that was slain, butchered for the sins of the people. And John looks at the lamb that was killed and it's covered in blood. And John looks at him and so do you and I because John's writing this in pictures so that we can understand this through images and through pictures and through creatures. And John sees the one who first loved him. Remember, John wrote another little letter and in it he said, we love because he, the lamb, first loved us. That's what John wrote. And so here's the one we love because he first loved us. This is the greatest human being who ever lived. The only perfect human being. This is the God-man. This is the hope of the human race. And I want you to see this in your mind's eye. He is covered in blood. He's the lamb standing as though it had been slain. Blood was shed. And I am the cause of that. And so are you. I'm the reason. My sin is the reason he's covered in blood. And the Lamb of God looks at us and says, it's all right. It's okay. Don't you know I love you? I've got this. Everything's going to be okay. I can open the scroll. The lamb is comforting us. So is it any wonder whatsoever (laughs) that everybody who at that moment, this very tense, very, very intense moment in heaven, everybody sees the lamb take the scroll and everybody just, they break out in song. I mean, what else are you going to do? Everybody just starts singing. And this is what they sing. They say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on earth. Do you understand? We're going to reign someday. We don't deserve to reign. But it's because of the lamb who's covered in blood. Friends, this is the great theme of the book of Revelation, told in pictures and images and creatures and objects. It's all about Jesus. Start to finish. And as we read and study this book, we will discover that our story is actually all sewn up and intertwined with his story. His humiliation becomes our exaltation. Go figure. His suffering becomes our salvation. Go figure. His triumph becomes our triumph. And I'll tell you, my prayer is that in studying this book, we will see Jesus 
in a new light. We will wake up. The blinders will be removed and we will see his glory. We will experience his truth and his love like never before. And as a result, our our community here, this church, will take on a confidence to share Jesus with others and we will come to love others the way Jesus has loved us and we will face trials with greater boldness, greater peace, greater contentment and trust in the one who holds it all in his hands. We will become a people who look like, act like, and give more honor and glory to Jesus. That's what we're signing up for. And uh, hope you'll be with us in this series. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're biting off a lot in this book. And we just acknowledge up front how much we need you to guide us, to fill us with your spirit, to keep us out of danger and give us good understanding of this book. We want, as we study this book, Lord, to be changed. We want to see Jesus more clearly and understand more deeply exactly who he is, exactly what he's done, and exactly how we should respond to that. Lord, may the words that come out of Jesus' mouth, this sword, may they have power and authority in our lives. And as we study this book, God, may that be more and more and more true in us. Thank you, God, for being our teacher. Thank you for this book. Thank you for this time of worship. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.